Greetings, and thank you to my host for the warm introduction, and thank you also to those who have tuned in. I recognize a few of you even through the unique doorway of cyberspace. As a retired educator of 33 years, as an individual with both strengths and weaknesses, as one familiar with agony and ecstasy, even suddenly being diagnosed with a long-term illness, I can honestly say it is the goodwill and hard work of fellow artists, community collaborators and organizations like the McGuffey Art Center, the Charlottesville Black Arts Collective, and writer Corey Price, who continually inspire me. The idea of sharing, creating, reflecting, and giving unite happily in your everyday actions and legacies. Again, I especially thank those of you who have tuned in. If you get nothing else from these 30 minutes, I hope you get the idea that you likely already know that life is full of many ecstasies, such as the one I felt in creating my first book, especially when I was at a low point in my life. Good things do actually happen all around us, that we should also work for them and share them in as many unique ways as we can. Poetry, and in this case, publication and photography, for me are mostly about experiencing, about feeling and memorializing life gifts. They are also about freedom, about expressing uniquely what often feels eternal and timeless, and which helps to connect the many currents and fireflies that flicker almost daily in our heads. The first poem I will read gets at some of this, but also it comes from a slightly different perspective, that good things come sometimes just because they come and they have always been a part of the African-American experience, just like water. I call this poem, Wayside. A wayside, of course, is a place along a road. Wayside. The best get their sugar for free. They find it along the edges of roads and rivers the round bodies of rocks and stones. They dip it from the morning dew, stir it in petal bowls of flowers, weeping beside logs where they climb. Large purple mussels glow, even evening sour with yellow. They sweeten like black molasses, better themselves before the darkest windows Glisten like spring water. Seek. Grow.
In my book, I not only wanted to celebrate my ancestors of the past, but I wanted to bring them into the future, including contemporary subjects. In this poem, the speaker reflects upon the past from the perspective of the modern-day world of technology, virtual. Mama says the times they fly, braided, open, she waves at abstract pictures, walls that keep changing. None of the woman, women are broke. The men, not often fathers, and their houses are penthouse plazas. So are their cars and Cadillacs. Where are you, mother and father? Where is the shady dirt road and small broken house along the river that made us strong? In my book, this happened kind of um, intrinsically that quite a few of the poems were about women because I love women and they are a deep part of my culture and my history and my now. This poem is called Vivian Walker's First Employ. It's set a little before the 50s, the decade of my birth. Also set in a a local river restaurant. It depicts a close family member in conflict and resolution, which for the speaker becomes empowerment. Vivian Walker's first employee. Speaking of you casually, she tried to remember what she liked. A table by the window where the white men were quiet colored only crushed a little. A few extra Washingtons and a beaded pocketbook. Dad's not so angry anymore. You both went out to find what the world was like and finding it hard as a day without tips refused to say I just can't do it. I'm coming home. Instead, Vivian Walker rattled a few more plates, kneaded her stomach full as cake, sighed yesa to old man Jake, and stuck two quarters down in her brazier. Vivian Walker's first employee. Another poem about my mother's lifetime friend, Nominee. Nominee is actually a real person from my childhood, as many of the characters in my book, who was very close to my mother. This poem is about the joyful uniqueness in the child who is the speaker who observes her, 
who also observes his mother and his mother's friend, Namani. Mama wouldn't tell how she knew her, but the name would roll off her lips like butter or pie. Something churned in old cedar their fathers had dragged up from the woods. Where you get that hat, she said, the summer storms suddenly flapping into the cow barn, the old two-story to the graves and sky, so dark and spooky, I sniggered and cackled, nearly falling. And so <laughs> we all cackled, feeling something so wrong, so perfect and pretty. We somehow just knew. Nominee. All right, I'll move to the river. Slow drag river. Slow drag river. This is a kind of a love poem, as some others in my collection are. It's set along the Rappahannock River, where I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and tells of family and the current of love, which, like water, often moves as it will. Slow drag river. Some say my mother was a bit shaky to love my father. All those nights he came in, head slobbering, covering it in a cloth she never wept but sent us drying to the sofa, wondering if he'd go out. Lying by a long, low canvas seat, seep, where the sun had slowly set, I met you in a ballad, thundered I do, not seeing how love, meandering this way and that, falls through cracks, suddenly and drops, that slip from valley and rock, and then, seeking only a small pool along the ocean, does, does so much more than that. <clears throat> Another kind of love poem. This one a little bit more somber. Dead Street. And uh, it does not have a, an agrarian setting, but it moves to the city of Richmond. It examines a body of water in an old city where the speaker's heart was broken and subsequently full of agony. Dad Street. That sorry street where you used to live when I was young and lovely, where all the cars broke, the backyard apple orchards rotted, the swoops hung in long ropes, the deep gutted ghetto pool closed upon itself, 
and the storekeepers that couldn't sell their penny candy. I passed you walking there one night, black, sour, lonely, and without stopping, I drove all the way to Lombardy, still unable to swim out. Another poem in the city, East Park Mall. Most of my poetry in this collection is somewhat lyrical. This poem, however, uh, oftentimes I try to um, <coughs> try different styles. This one is more um, drawn out and prosaic. It presents a senior citizen watching the destruction of an old mall in a city as he longs to remember the aunt who used to take him to the mall to watch, watch the fish. East Park Mall. Before the condo at Park and Main running east and west, the yellow Kumatsu pushes with a cold and steamy breath. The long arm scoops at clay, slackened slabs, downward tiles of steps, no longer places to go up, not caring to lay the second floor anywhere different than the first. It shoves steel into soil, wood into dust, heaps of rubble and brackish rust that chip, crumble, crack, lie broken before the budding trees. Spring when the earth plans for pears, barters for new perennial seeds, a short sleeve shirt, enough for grass and blue breeze, Reaching a blanket buried in the bottom of the bureau, I remember the many things that do not last. But suddenly, on a whim, my aunt, glossy in a peach hat, springs from her new convertible, opens the door, pulls me by one tiny finger to look at what darts like fire flickers on castles of stone, caves brightened by neon permanence of everything in light. Almost forever we gaze at the sights, the flash, the glow in the clear reflection that stays in water, bent from the chilly street, now splashed with chalk, where I have suddenly traveled back to the mall to grow old. In the blighted condo on the Friday of my last fall, I folded the heap of the large blanket that wouldn't warm, sped to the pet shop on Jefferson, and despite the many glares of the little white girl encased by Facebook, bought one of the tiniest, yellowest fish. East Park Mall. The next poem I wrote as a result of reading an article, or actually it was kind of a, a biography, I think, a memoir, 
<coughs> like the one I'm currently writing, I'm working on my second book. The title is Agnes Sappho and Moses Rising. Of course, you know, Sappho was one of our earliest Greek poets. I wrote this poem reading a true story of a poet and her lesbian companion riding along a dark, isolated country road, pretty much like the ones I rode along as a kid. And she was uh, being pulled over by an officer. She feared, may not have thought her life mattered at all. Agnes Sappho and Moses Rising in that new car along the dark, winding country road where she knew no one but an old woman in dreads, rough as boards in the headlights of moonlight and quiet porches where everything stopped. The free verse of poetry forced again below the soft knitted blackness of the leather seat beneath that high white star, insisting but giving no direction, knowing both the star and the dark faraway fields where freedom hangs. I was that passenger. I was that beautiful lost lady riding and writing without interpretation. Another poem about being different or being a part of a minority. The title is Darkest. Darkest is a new poem that kind of plowed its way into my book because my book begins largely from the perspective of um, a sharecropping family that the constant harsh sun tried to burn into a crisp. The attempt, however, produces not a, a tart, but a crispy treat with a bright new high-rise to boot. Darkest. Everyone thought they'd just stumble and die because the plow had, the house had, and mule Everyone thought the hammers would fail. The nail not harnessed, the harrow racked no ground with its dragged out tooth. Except the darkest. He sharecropped to send to school. And her tiny, grimy son, who would puff and build the biggest, brightest skyscrapers with only one bear black thumb. The next poem is also about um, a member of our community who is often overlooked. Crow. Crow is set during the segregated agrarian South. The speaker recalls an uncle whose plainness, whose simplicity, and individuality become immortal strength. <coughs> Crow. 
thinking anything but beans. He waved craggy claws, arms burned black as tall, more like wings, when the flappy wind dipped along the edges where just one of anything counted. Ireland, with a lot of sand, unbuttoned eyes like seeds, scarecrow hat weaved like tattered bale of straw. On Saturday, some uncles have too much hooch, one great-aunt hawked, though I can't remember all of it. Walking along his father's fields with a heavy book, worn down with the incivility of war. Evenings, I would pause, come upon him, segregated and leggy as a pair of pants, in a row barely open enough for sky, too plain to be read, yet strong and steady enough to wobble, dip, lift like a winged atlas, all our huge, round, untotable melons. Legacy and Water I put this poem near uh, the end of my book. My book is divided into three sections with kind of um, a story-like quality. And what I'm moving to is um, fulfillment of spirit through remembering ancestors and uh, celebrating the people that I currently know in my life. Um... Early in the process of creating my book, it occurred to me that I wanted to use water as a dominant medium of expressing some of my thoughts about ancestry and legacy. Because one, we lived along the river. Two, water is life-sustaining. Three, it's often constant and restorative. The two came together somewhat intuitively in this poem about deeper connection through time. In this poem, the speaker is addressing an imaginary son or child, legacy and water. I kissed his eye as though ashore where mothers greeted waded through time along ships where white sheets scattered. I reached deep where water runs over ancient feet and heals flight of storm, not yet lighting the dark cradle where he lay. And seeing how far yonder the lost heart swims to find soul. The eye looked up and all our great fathers rose. A couple more poems. This poem is... Um, the first poem in my book. Also, it served as the starting point from which 
I examined my life and ancestors. I would say it's, uh, well, it is the oldest of my poems that I've retained, and likely it's my most favorite. It recalls my rich childhood of large old houses, long green slopes along the river, and baseball. But the poem moves beyond baseball, which was kind of a, a torch of freedom in my childhood as jazz was a little bit earlier. It moves to a small present recognition that things often change for the better. Billy. Sunday evenings after church, we played baseball down in the green slope of the field before the big house our grandfathers built with bare hands when they were scrapping teens like us. Billy was my favorite enemy, a long-legged yellow bird who could knuckle a ball over a tinfoil home plate as though it was a spear. The girls giggled when he grimaced on the mound, ground the ball in his wide palms, and hurled it straight at me. Last night, I stopped at the country store after grandfather's long, sad funeral to buy a Diet Coke and chew grief with old family and neighbors. The store was mostly empty except for Aunt Lavonia, the owner, a few faces I didn't recognize, and Billy back in a corner, legs crossed on a second-hand pew like a would-be Deegan or sullen chief. I asked him about the wife and five children who left him, and he shuffled his loosely tied boots, smacked on his tobacco, and spat in a small tin can behind the door. Aunt Livonia cursed about the billy owed, and he talked about the job he was getting on the river, his eyes like wet glass, or water, shifting a little like my mother's. Yet in them I saw an essence around familiarity that sent me home to my bachelor apartment in the city, feeling both ashamed and proud. I had all those Sundays let him strike me out. The last poem, A Theory of Evolution. I guess I will close with this one. It explores the singularity, the quite honest implausibility and majesty of the human experience in the presence of not another human being such as Billy but an animal. A theory of evolution. I don't know why his feet are curled, mine pointing half-ass in thatched sandals beside an anthill on the other side of China. But in a silly offhand way, we both have four, quite possibly five, 
The last, the fun, fancy one, all right to be flat in grass. I lost a million years ago, dodging a scaly dinosaur reaching between two biblical stones. Yesterday, life stunk like old fish. I cried over cancer and worked too hard in the lilies while he, suddenly in love, chased a beautiful monarch to its death. But, as though only now, there is a still sweetness in the air, cuffed beneath my chair, happy to be worn down and floppy in the day's end dust. I, too quieted by the implausibility of love, stopping exactly at my toe. <laughs> ah, to live forever in this yard like no other, forgetting the gnats and flies. Oh, I guess a bit too old now to worry why all things thirst and burn and feast. With a hundred thousand rays, the sun goes down without one word of sight, great fluted lights. We both watch, a bit surprised and complacent, to almost stop, caught like pinwheels and dandelions under the rocks and stars. That, the riding, shining through our soft yellow pilot scarfs and rounded ears, are the last slow drift of a thousand evenings still not over. Now, they are too close for ending here in the middle of all of time where petal and airborne pappas most peacefully through some great divine and native will has decided it is to be forever quiet, forever pleased with its feline journey. I thank you for your attention, and I think we're going to have a, a, a brief question and answer uh, portion of this um, virtual program. So please... Um, uh, ask your questions, pass them to the host, or she might just dial you in. Thank you very much.